Today's podcast is sponsored by Discovery Plus. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you'll know the Giro d'Italia is my favourite stage race of the year. The terrain, it's wild, the crowds are fanatical and the race is just always so unpredictable. So from the 6th of May, I'll be watching the Giro d'Italia content on Discovery Plus, which will be showing all the action live or on demand. All this coverage costs only $6.99 a month and you'll be able to catch the Tour de France, La Vuelta a España and loads more racing through your subscription. Not bad for $6.99 a month. You can go to discoveryplus.com or download the Discovery Plus app from your app store. The app is available on a wide variety of platforms and devices including Amazon, Apple, Google, Roku, LG and Samsung. Check out discoveryplus.com to get started and the link is in today's show notes. Don't forget, terms and conditions apply and a subscription is required. It's for 18-year-olds and over. And remember, like any subscription, your monthly or annual plan will auto-renew unless cancelled. The big question is this. How do we use cycling as a tool to improve our health, our happiness and our longevity? That is the question. And this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Anthony Walsh and welcome to the Roadman Podcast. Roadman, welcome back to episode number 432, and today I am joined by best-selling author James Nestor. Gun to my head, if I was to pick my podium favourite ever podcasts, this would definitely be in it, as one of the most enjoyable conversations I've had, one of the most eye-opening, thought-provoking conversations I've had, but also one of the most lifestyle-changing conversations I've had and James Nestor's work has it's created a new behavior in me and I'll unapologetically unashamedly tell you and maybe even post a picture on Instagram my bedside locker since reading James work and hearing him initially on Joe Rogan I've taped my mouth every night in bed ever since and it's a practice that I'm sure after listening to this conversation you're going to find yourself going from a place now going you do what you tape your mouth at night time are you off your head you're going to transition from that to sending me pictures of taping your mouth at night it's that good James joins me to talk about one of the forgotten pillars of health breeding there's nothing more essential to our health and well-being than breeding The simple process of taking air in and letting air out. We do that 25,000 times a day. Yet as a species, humans, we've lost the ability to breed correctly. And as James talks to me about in this interview, there's absolutely grave, grave consequences to that. The show notes for today's episode and all the links to James' book, James' website, his Instagram and anything we talk about in this show, including the video version of this podcast, it's all over on our new show notes page, which is roadmancycling.com forward slash show notes forward slash 432, which is the episode number today. Roadman, I'm not going to push this off any further. Let me welcome to the podcast, the amazing Mr. James Nestor. Thanks a lot for having me. James, I'm uh, interested to hear uh, to kind of, the, I suppose my girlfriend is probably more interested to hear why I have pieces of sticky tape stuck onto my bedside locker. <laughs> if anyone doesn't know what I'm talking about, do you, do you get these pictures of people that tape their mouth now at night and afterwards they discard the used tape by just sticking it to the bedside locker? Well, I have no idea what you're doing with that tape, so I, I can't speak to that. <laughs> but if you're re- regarding uh, mouth taping, I can speak to that a little bit. And yeah, this is the one thing I've heard more from people than, than anything else. 
And what this is, just to let people know who aren't already doing it, hopefully by the end of the podcast you will be doing it, is this is placing a little piece of tape on your mouth at night to keep you from breathing through your mouth, which is something about 60% of the population does. We are mouth breathers at night. Very bad. And once you learn to breathe through your nose, uh, the benefits become pretty apparent very quickly. And we're going to get deep into all of that. But I just feel like where everyone's looking for this, what is my trending bit? What is like we had the ice bucket challenge, which went crazy over here, where people threw a bucket of ice over their head and then they nominated uh, two or three of their friends to also throw buckets of ice over their head. And it was to raise uh, awareness for mental health. But this went completely viral here. But I feel like I've friends who are professional cyclists and they've sent me pictures of their bedside locker with the pieces of sticky tape that they've used to tape their mouth. I think this has the potential to be a sort of a viral meme image for you. I think you need to look into that. Well, I'm, I'm ashamed that if I die, if that's what I'm remembered for, uh, it's, it's going to be a pretty sad day. Uh, to be clear, this was not my idea. This was something that uh, ENTs and dentists have been prescribing for decades. I just happened to write about it. So I blame them. Uh, James, congratulations. An amazing book. I'm sure at this point you're probably sick of talking about it, but I think it's it, it's an important contribution to definitely everything that we stand for here in the podcast. The mantra for the podcast is health, happiness, and longevity. And when I look at pillars of health, I feel like that breeding and the body of work that you've contributed to breeding it's now up there with equal importance with matt walker and like why we sleep and you know the fundamental principles of movement and some of the traditions we've learned from blue zones it's such a seminal piece of work now how has your life changed since writing it well first of all thank you very much i mean i love all those books i love all those researchers i've been a big fan of them uh for years and years so I am just a journalist. That's that's all I am. I'm a filter. Uh, Matt Walker is a researcher. Uh, he went out and researched and explained his research in his book. So uh, the real credit goes to these people who have been working away, uh, sometimes in vain, uh, almost all of them anonymously for, for decades and decades trying to get this message out. So I was just lucky enough to stumble upon it at, at the right time, I guess. So since the book has come out, it's been out for God, uh, about two years now, uh, I, I literally uh, have been on a extended book tour ever, ever since. Amazing. Um, so the, the moment that I get very tired of this stuff and I'm not excited to spread the word, I'm going to stop. Maybe that moment's coming up uh, pretty soon, but uh, I still get <laughs> pumped up, mo- mostly because I keep hearing from people that the simplest things, these things are free, they're available to everyone, everywhere, at all times, and they have completely transform people's health and so that is really what keeps me going here well i think about it with the podcast sometimes and you know with our time difference it's quite late when we're recording here in the evening in ireland and oftentimes it's like oh my god another podcast but i, I ground myself with diary and then i bring it back and go the wide metrics are brilliant on the number of downloads and it's been exploding over the last few months but i think we lose sometimes what those metrics mean and i'm sure you've done this with your book sales as well like the depth metric is so important you can fundamentally change somebody's life with a message that's delivered to them at the right moment in their life and i think you know 
me lesser so with the podcast you more so with the book really have the potential to do that i think you're right with people so obsessed with data and metrics and those are important for as, as a diagnosis to, to diagnostic rather to let just people know what's going on uh, and and i think of that in regards to wearables people are now have five different wearables and they're collecting all this data but it's like what are you doing with that data how, how is that changing your life for for the better and so it, it ultimately comes down to each individual and what they're getting out of these practices. And that's why it's hard to offer a blanket prescription to everyone. Hey, breathe this same way, everybody, and, and you're all going to be healthy for, forevermore. No, that's, that's wrong. But I think it's acknowledging how breathing is, is a, a essential function. It is a pillar of health. It's not just about eating and exercise. If you're doing those two things but if you're breathing dysfunctionally you're never ever going to be healthy and this is just something i still don't hear that many people talking about that's starting to change a little bit but the research has been there for decades and decades is the conversation slightly muted on breathing it because it's difficult to measure and you touched on data there we've have like a proliferation of data monitoring from whoop to order ring apple watch and you know many in between that we can measure I actually have a little bit of a problem with some of those measurements because it's like, yeah, sure, I'm getting a bunch of data from my Aura ring, which I'm wearing at the moment, but it's like, what do I do with that? It's not very prescriptive, but we, we don't measure breathing at all with these devices. Is that a frustration or an annoyance or could, do you see innovation coming down the path? Well, breathing is actually extremely easy to measure. You can measure it, your breaths per minute, uh, by yourself. You can use a device to do that as well. You can measure how changing your breathing will affect your blood pressure, how it will affect your heart rate variability over time, how it will affect your athletic performance and your sleep quality. So we can measure all these things. I'm not going to name specific wearables uh, by by their their brand name, but but I will tell you, I have all this stuff at my house, and the vast majority of them are very inaccurate when it comes to respiratory rates, and very inaccurate in in other areas of of important details. And they're selling these things as medical grade, and they are not. I, I promise you, they they aren't. They are a very good gauge to have a general overview on your health, but anything deeper than that, they they are not very accurate. So the second thing is beyond breathing being easy to measure, and that's what I love about it. If you don't believe what I'm saying about changing your respiratory rate, about changing the way in which you take in air, about calming yourself and how that affects your heart rate, your blood pressure, so many other metrics, then you can see it yourself with all of these wearables you have around the house. But I think the main thing why people have been hesitant to really adopt these practices is because it's so simple. So modern humans really like to make things complex. Think about diet now. Oh, I have to take that supplement with that food. I have to take this supplement. I need to eat at this time of the day. <laughs> it doesn't need to be that difficult. Our ancestors got by just fine. 
you know. So, I think the so. pandemic shone such a light on this culture of instant gratification that we have versus, you know, time immemorial, what has worked. People are always looking for a quick fix for stuff. You know, uh, something about Mary, I love the scene where they're looking for seven minute abs. And uh, that was like a parody comedy scene at the time. But that's what we've become as a culture where we're looking for a vitamin pill. We're looking for an injection. We're looking for something to replace 365 24 7 good habits and practices like sleep movement hydration breath work good food exercise there's no ninja hacks here it's just how you're meant to live yes and no i i have to say that there is one thing that will allow you to more quickly change your level of anxiety your panic your asthma your mood and that is breathing more than any diet change, more than exercise. Diet and exercise take a while to really take effect, okay? It could be weeks, it could be even months. But if you change the way you breathe, you change the way your heart functions, you change the way your brain functions within a few seconds. This is measurable. I've been in the labs, I've measured it myself. So it this is a quick ninja hack, but the thing is, People want to do a one and done and then go back to their bad habits. <laughs> so this can fix that that problem you have in the moment, but then you have to make healthy breathing a habit. Just like you can't eat a bunch of spinach and say I'm good for the week and now I'm just going to drive down double burgers and fries. You have to make healthy eating a habit that you carry with you. But I know you looked at, and you talk about, uh, it was probably an unexpected side effect or side consequence of writing the book that you end up studying like historic ancient skulls. I wouldn't imagine you set out thinking that was the path you were going to go on. But it, was there a point in history or did you get to track a point in history where we went from good breeding practices to bad breeding practices? Yeah, I can tell you exactly when it happened. People say, well, how is that possible? You can't go back in time and look at people's respiratory rates. Yeah, but you can look at their skulls and you can look at what has happened to their noses and you can look at what has happened to their mouths, which is what I spent months and months all over the world doing. The fact is, if you take a modern skull and compare it to an ancient skull, these skulls look like different species. We have lost so much space in our sinus passages we've lost so much space in our mouths this is why we have crooked teeth this is why we have chronic obstruction this is why so many people have sleep apnea is because our faces our, our skulls have literally changed so yeah i i remember talking to my editor and she said well how's the research going this was years ago i said oh it's going great you know i'm looking at all these skulls i, I went to paris i looked at skulls she's like this is a book about breathing like what the hell are you doing i said i think it's going to make sense to you i think she was apprehensive but the reason i did that is you have to look at the core issue of respiratory dysfunction if you're going to understand it if you're going to change it and you really have to go to the past you have to go to our bone structure and how that's changed and can you speculate as to what caused us to shift the way we breathe um, I can't speculate. I could tell you absolute facts of, of even exactly better what, of exactly what happened. You know, some people have written and said, you know, it's a very interesting hypothesis that you have about how our faces have changed. This is not a hypothesis. Okay, this is a measurable fact. Anyone can see this for for themselves. So here's what happened: industrial foods came into the food supply. So for the first time in the history of 
of life on this planet an animal could eat food that wasn't natural that wasn't fresh that was uh, pulverized that was soft that was canned that was bottled and that's what we did so starting in the industrial age we our diets shifted and because of this shift in our diets our faces shrunk in a single generation pop 50 percent of a population had crooked teeth and they never had crooked teeth before because their mouths had grown so small you can trace the exact moment when this happened there are other drivers to this but i'll just I'll just stay there on a sec. I can tell you're you're waiting to say something, so I'll, I'll shut up. Here. Yeah, no, it's just as you're talking, the the pieces are coming together for me. I know you've been on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, and I had Ben O'Brien, who was also on the podcast with Joe Rogan. He was on with me a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying to me like, "Get out and get yourself some like wild." meat some wild elk he's like it's not the same as your farm fed your grain fed factory uh, grown meat he's like it's different so i got my wild elk and i cooked it up and it's hard to chew like it's an it's a workout like my jaw i'm like i've got lactic acid in my jaw this is hard to, it's different it's you know normal steak you could cut it with a spoon you need a power tool to get through this yeah, and that's that's a great example. And all of the foods were like that for the entire time we were evolving for, for millions and millions of years until a very clear point in time when we went from chewing from about two to three hours a day, grinding. I mean, imagine chewing raw roots, raw potatoes, raw carrots all day and then having meat like that, elephant <laughs> meat, tiger meat. You're, you're chomping all day long in that masticatory stress allowed us to build proper jaws and open our mouths and open our sinus passages so this is 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 not a hypothesis they've done scientific studies where they've taken pigs and gave them the same food that food was very soft for one group of pigs and very hard for the other group and the same thing happened so it's easily testable our lifestyle of convenience just doesn't serve us in so many ways. That's like a common thread that I'm starting to pull at through this podcast. The more people you talk to, it's this lifestyle of comfort. We're not really very well adapted to it. Well, what I've learned, and you can spruce this up with a bunch of different analogies and different comparisons, but it, it all comes down to this. The further we've moved away from the natural environment in which we've evolved, we've gotten sicker and sicker and sicker. And the more closely we go and reintegrate into that natural environment, the healthier we get. So this is not some woo-woo new age thing. This is looking at how our bodies have adapted to live and to exist. So now we have these things that it's take 10,000 steps a day. Okay, uh, that's the exercise you need. It's great advice. Guess what? Our ancestors didn't need a pedometer. They walked six miles every single day anyway. Now we have different devices to chew. These silicone patches you chew on, jaws are sized. Our ancestors didn't need that because they chewed food. You know, turn off lights at night to allow yourself to get better sleep. Well, we didn't have lights until 100, you know, 20 years ago. So the more we can remove these modern industrial influences the more our bodies can come back to a state of balance it doesn't matter if we're talking about food or breathing or exercise or sleep or whatever 
I remember when I was in school, you used to tease like the kid who was a bit slow in the class. You tease him and you'd call him a mouth breeder. Like that was a proper insult. It was an old school insult. I'm sure there's kids listening to the podcast going, oh my God, you guys were lame in school. But you actually replicated being a mouth breeder for you taped up did you stuff up your nose or how did you block up your nose yeah so of all the insults that kids call each other this one actually has merit (laughs) you do not want to be a mouth breather it affects how you look it affects your respiratory health it affects how you think it affects how you sleep and more so we've known this for decades down at stanford which is very close to my house here in san francisco this researcher by the name of Christian Guimano had been studying it for about 50 years. He'd been looking at different sleep apnea, different ways of breathing, how they affected kids' development. And he had done a ton of studies into mouth breathing, nasal breathing. So this was a known thing, but what people didn't know, or at least the researchers I was talking to, what they didn't know is how quickly that damage from mouth breathing came on, right? Did it happen after a number of years, a number of decades, or what? No one had done a human test of this. We've done monkey tests. Uh, don't read those studies. They're absolutely awful. And they they destroyed these monkeys' health, you know, within a matter of months of just mouth breathing. So the longest amount that we were allowed to do the study for was 10 days mouth breathing. So we had crap silicon and tape and other crap up our noses. So we're just breathing through our mouths for 10 days. And it was me and one other person. We had to pay for the study. That was the maximum amount of people allowed to do this, this experiment. And it was 10 days of mouth breathing versus 10 days of nasal breathing. And we, we gathered every little speck of data you could imagine and looked at the data sets between those two. And how soon during the 10 days did you start noticing uh, visible deterioration in some of your health markers? It was within a number of hours, actually. My blood pressure shot up about 25 points higher than I've ever seen it before. And I thought, oh, I just had a stressful day. We are at Stanford for eight hours, did four different blood draws. You know, it was awful. And then that night I started snoring. So, so within a few hours of, of obstruction, I started snoring and I had not snored before. Okay. We took uh, weeks and weeks of baseline. The other person in the study, Anders Olson, had the same exact thing. Within a few days, I was snoring about four hours throughout the night from zero to four hours, just by changing the pathway through which I breathe. And Anders was snoring for about almost the entire night, six, six or seven hours. So, you know, we didn't do this experiment to as like some jackass stunt right we were looking at the number of people who are chronically obstructed people with chronic sinusitis about 15 percent of the population chronically inflamed turbinates about 50 percent of the population so so much of the population is cruising around mouth breathing and they don't realize that a lot of the problems they're having are tied to the pathway through which they're breathing air. We were able to experience this and able to measure it as it came on and as it went away. So blood pressure was adversely affected. Snoring, sleep. Do you have? Did you have sleep data from it? Were you sleeping differently? Or were you sleeping? You know, not as much time in restorative sleep. Much more shallow. Much less deep sleep. Um, uh, I, I woke up every single day absolutely exhausted, even though technically I was asleep for eight hours. Um, we took video of it. We were looking, we wore continuous 
uh, blood glucose monitors. Didn't see a lot of difference from that. We know that later on, uh, over months, you will see a difference, which is why sleep apnea is directly linked to adult onset diabetes. Who know? Who knew that how you breathe would affect whether or not you get diabetes? But but that likely needs to happen over months and months or years and years. Uh, we just don't know. You can't run human trials for years and have one group of people obstructed and the other group uh, breathing through their noses. So this was as close as we could get to that. Yeah, you say you can't run those human trials. I was reading some shocking stuff recently. Do you know, uh, it was World War One on conscientious dissenters. They ran trials on con this, that's not a long time ago and they were running very unethical experiments on conscientious dissenters to the war in allied countries yeah the, the ones where they would deprive them of uh of about half of the calories they needed yeah and and, and uh but i i guess i could have should have said you can't run these trials now but yeah a <laughs> hundred years ago i mean the stuff i was seeing with orphans all these kids put in orphanages they were running these crazy trials on vitamin d levels and seeing what would happen to these kids after months of being denied regular vitamin d and how it would destroy their their teeth how it would destroy their health you, you just can't do that nowadays but you can in the in the past and that, that's what some of the research that i was looking at looking at respiratory problems and different um, subjecting people to different ways of breathing were from from past studies. But this was one that I just wanted to personally experience as a journalist, what it was like to be a mouth breather, you know, so like 50% of kids, up to 50% of kids are mouth breathers. More than 60% of us breathe through our mouths at night. And I wanted to feel that and I wanted to record what happened. And, and that's why we did the experiment. From a cycling perspective, I would have loved to test your VO2, your maximum oxygen uptake pre-test, pre-blocking the nasal passage and post-blocking it and seeing the effect. We had so many different metrics we wanted to. I, I don't know after 10 days if it would have had a huge difference. We were looking at blood as well. We were looking at, there were a lot more... Um, we uh, had a lot more cortisol at the end of the mouth breathing, um, but uh, I'm hoping actually to do another one of these. So many people have written in and said, I will volunteer for any experiment you want to do. I just, <laughs> good luck finding funding for this. Yeah. Like no pharmaceutical company is going to fund this, you know? So if, if there's some, some rich person out there that wants to fund this, uh, we can put it together. We'll run it at Stanford. So your experiment was quite binary. It's like, a nasal passage is completely blocked or not blocked at all but i feel like most of the listeners myself included are uh, i broke my nose when i was playing soccer as a 15 16 year old i had it fixed but even if i look straight at the camera you can see it's not perfectly fixed i don't know how much uh impairment i have but i would bet it's a number greater than zero is there a way to determine if somebody has impairments in their nasal passage yeah, great question. Um, it turns out that most of us, the vast majority of us have some sort of impairment. But what we do is we just figure it out. We work around it. Just like other people have impairments, uh, maybe with their ability to read, uh, but they, they're able to get through life just fine. Or some people, maybe their left uh, foot is uh, you know half an inch shorter than their right foot, but, but we compensate. So you can take CAT scans, you can look at your sinus passages, you can do some other tests that don't require you going into a lab. Uh, 
interesting study to do, not study, but interesting thing to do is do the Friedman tongue scale test, which is go to a mirror and look at your tongue when your tongue is relaxed. And if you can see clearly to your throat, then that's a sign that you are less apt to suffer from airway issues and sleep apnea. If you can't see your throat at all, when your tongue is relaxed on the bottom of your mouth, you're much more likely to suffer from airway issues and sleep apnea and other sleep disordered breathing. This is not a perfect test. Uh, to get a perfect test, you'd need to go do an ear, nose, and throat surgeon. They can take a CAT scan. They can look at all your sinus passages. I will say though, having talked to dozens and dozens of these people, usually what will happen, not usually, sometimes what will happen is uh, ENT will, will see, oh, you, you have this obstruction here. You broke your nose at this time. This is why you can't breathe. We need to rush you into surgery. <laughs> the vast majority of people do not need surgery. They need to start breathing through their noses more. Our noses will start to open up and acclimate. And this is exactly what happened to me. It's what happened with Ann Kearney down at Stanford, who was slated for nasal surgery. It's what's happened with thousands and thousands of other people. The nose is a use it or lose it organ. The more we use it, the more we are able to breathe more easily and in in a more healthy way. Well, that was going to be my question. My Obviously, my experience is very anecdotal study group of one. But when I've been taping, my, do you tape your mouth at nighttime still? Every single night. Yep. So I was, went through periods where read the book, fanatically taped my mouth for a period of time. And, you know, maybe I, I went away on holidays or whatever the catalyst was. I went through a period where I stopped taping my mouth for a while and then I went back to doing it. And when I returned, resumed taping my mouth, my mouth again, I felt the difficulty breathing through the nose. It was almost like I can't get the amount of oxygen I need to get here. And I really had to concentrate. And it was a very conscious process of actually trying to breathe. But I noticed after as little as a half an hour of me actually focusing on it, it felt like I was getting control of it. It felt like the nasal passage was expanding and now I was able to get more air in. And if you fast forward that or four or five nights of just disciplined mouth taping, it's like I'm back to breathing at above normal capacity. Is that is there any sense in that or is that just me imagining it? Isn't the body an amazing thing? Uh, <laughs> there's absolute sense to that. So our nasal passages are covered with erectile tissue. It's the same erectile tissue as, as you know where, and it works in the same way. So this erectile tissue can engorge with blood um, to obstruct your nasal passages, or it can open up. So when you start breathing through your nose more, those tissues will respond and they will start to open up. And Kearney, I just mentioned her, down at Stanford did a study where she was looking at people with uh, laryngectomies um, who had a, a little hole throw, uh, dr drilled in their throat because they had some sort of cancer or problems with their mouths. Within two months to two years, their noses were 100% blocked up, 100% when they weren't using it. So she used that as an inspiration to start breathing through her nose more. She knew the nose could close. She also knew it could start to open up. So the reason why after a half an hour things got easier is you were sending more signals to your nose to dilate, to open up. It's just like working out something else. It's almost like stretching and then you're more flexible. 
So I bet the next night was easier and the night after that was easier. And I've, I've had your same experience with mouth tape is I never thought I'd have to be using this stuff my, my whole life, but I am just not blessed with, with that big pronathic chin uh, or facial structure. And every time I put my head on pillow, my mouth opens. So, so I'm stuck with that, but, but I'll keep using it because I know the difference it makes to my sleep quality and so much more. How's the mouth tape going with the beard? I work it out just fine. People say, <laughs> I can't mouth tape with a beard. It's like, well, I'll show you. You know, so everyone's got their own style of, of mouth taping. I don't, I don't care how you do it. You know, that whatever works for you is fine. I use a very small piece of tape and tape just my lips. Okay. At the center of my lips. That's all I need. Some people like a fat strip across their mouth. That's cool. I don't care. Um, but just using that small piece of tape just trains me throughout the night when I go unconscious and my muscles relax, this trains me to keep my mouth shut. And let me tell you, whenever I've been traveling and I've forgotten my tape and I've said, oh, screw it, I'm just gonna breathe through my mouth tonight. I feel it so much the next morning. My mouth is, is dry, it's filled with film. I don't sleep as well, I know that from a wearable. And, and it's just something that now if I show up at a hotel, I don't have it, I have to go to a drugstore and, and, and buy something that that closely resembles the tape i have at home i feel like the audience out there that are single or in their tinder dating phases it's a difficult one to explain maybe on the first couple of dates with somebody sleeping over as to why you're taping your mouth at night well if someone's if you're just dating someone you're not sleeping too much anyway so definitely <laughs> ditch ditch the mouth tape um for for those those situations you could use right? the duct tape uh, for other stuff yeah yeah or yeah use it to have have fun with it whatever the <laughs> hell you want to do but but maybe that's something about you know i've been married a while uh, my wife knows I do so much other weird crap that, that she is just completely unfazed by this now. And she sees how much better off I am in the morning. I think she's grateful for it. So is, is there a fundamental difference in the way the nose is filtering oxygen versus how the mouth is filtering oxygen? Because I'm just thinking if I'm at a, a, a bike race or if I'm running full gas and I'm for like i'm above lactate threshold so i'm at that point where the effort is unsustainable and i'm frantically trying to get in as much air as i can when i when i envisage myself in that position and i vividly imagine that now i'm thinking of deep panic mouth breathing trying to fill my lungs with as much oxygen as i can is there a difference in i suppose a the capacity that i can take oxygen between mouth and note and b the quality uh, yes to both of those in, in such a big way. You have to think about the, the lungs. The lungs are the only organ beyond the skin a teeny bit that is able to extract oxygen from the, from the air, right? So you need to get air into your lungs. If you're breathing at a very fast rate and you're breathing shallow, which is the only way you're going to be able to breathe if you're breathing 50, 60 breaths a minute, <laughs> Yeah. The vast majority of that air is not making it to the lungs. What you're doing is you're taking air into the mouth, into the throat and the bronchi, but it's not making it to the area where it can extract oxygen. Further, that air is going in and out so fast that your lungs don't have time for it. They don't have the pressure they need to extract oxygen efficiently. It's equivalent to being at a stoplight and just revving your motor right? We have this huge piston in our chest. It's our diaphragm. This is just like revving it for, for no use. 
So that is one of the least efficient ways of riding a bike and one of the least efficient ways of breathing. The more you train yourself to breathe fewer breaths, but deeper controlled breaths through your nose, you will be able to get way more oxygen for way less effort. And if you're a competitor, that's what it's all about is running efficiently. I have been amazed by how adamantly people have been training in every other area. Oh, I'm going to eat 200 calories of that. And right before the race, I'm going to have this little glucose bump and I'm going to do this, but they're not paying attention to their breathing. We get the majority of our energy through our breath and you have to be doing that efficiently if you're going to be running efficiently. Pro cycling is one of the most data-driven sports in the world. Every single variable you can imagine is measured. When you look at indoor cycling, you know air pressure is measured, uh, density, humidity, coefficient of frontal drag. It's the most scientific sport you can imagine. It's like Moneyball on steroids. You know, steroids is not a good pun to use when it comes to cycling, but it's it's uh, Moneyball accelerated. But I feel like breeding is one of the unexplored frontiers. I did have this uh, really basic breeding device. Like, it was Power, power Breed. Do you remember them? They were out like five six years ago is there yeah is there companies like that coming to the market with breeding training tools so that is an inspiratory muscle trainer i'm looking for mine it was on my desk here somewhere um but there are dozens and dozens of those and what they do is they they train the muscles they specifically are training the diaphragm okay to allow you to breathe more so if you think about respiratory efficiency you want to be breathing deeper but if your lungs aren't that big if you aren't very flexible in your chest and intercostals you're not able to get the maximum amount of oxygen in there so you really need to focus on the fuel tank the fuel tank is is the lungs so inspiratory muscle training works incredibly well and that data goes back for decades and decades look at allison mcconnell's research in the 90s with cyclists doing inspiratory muscle training after a number of weeks and having these enormous gains so their time trials increased by four percent three to four percent which is a, as, as you know that that is an, an enormous difference and they were able to push so much harder before they reached that level of exhaustion so the Power Breathe works, uh, AeroFit works, um, so many other devices work, but it, it, it's not the device you need to rely on. It's, it's yourself and listening to yourself and building a, a training for, for each of these pieces of equipment that, that suits your needs, that's going to get you where you want to go. Some people buy the Power Breathe, try it for two weeks, say, ah, I don't feel too much. I'm, I'm going to throw this thing out. Well, it takes about, you know, four to eight weeks in order to, to, to really start seeing some of the benefits from, from doing these things. Why do you think it's not as sexy as other areas of performance? After I read your book, I was like, well, this is it. Like, this is going to kick off now, and it's all anybody is going to talk about. And it doesn't seem like we've kicked on from that. Yeah. You'd be surprised, man. I mean, the, the elite trainers I've talked to, here, here's the reality. People don't like to share their secrets for, for, for 
fitness, right? And the elite trainers I've talked to, these people are working with top NFL stars. They're working with hockey stars. They're working with cyclists. They're working with runners. They said, why do I want to go out and tell all my competitors that this is what you do in order to get your athletes in top shape? They like to keep these secrets themselves. And we've had these secrets around for decades and decades and decades. And specifically, people weren't talking about it. Now the cat's more or less out of the bag. If you look at Patrick McEwen's work with Oxygen Advantage, this guy is working with Navy SEALs. He's working with every imaginable athlete. And he's showing huge gains in, in performance and decreased time of, of recovery across the board. So the science is there. It just... You know, with breathing, it, especially with athletes, it can really take a while before you see that that huge impact. And if you're looking at someone who is predominantly a mouth breather when they're competing, their performance will go down as they're converting to nasal breathing. And it will stay down for a number of weeks to even a number of months before they start to crest back up. But once they convert to nasal breathing, the science is very clear that performance will improve, recovery times will decrease, and they'll they'll be better overall. It just takes a long time. A lot of people are very impatient. And would you mouth tape during interval training, or is there protocols around that? Here, here and there. You know, uh, when I'm talking about mouth breathing and nasal breathing, I'm talking about habitual breathing. So I just took a mouth breath, right? Who cares? When you laugh, you're breathing through your mouth. When you're hitting like upper zone four, zone five, sometimes you default to mouth breathing. That mouth breathing at that time can be a tool. It is a conscious tool you use to restart your respiratory system. Okay. And it's very effective in those stages. But for the vast majority of the time, especially if you're in zone two, if you're just jogging, if you're cruising around, if you're walking, all of the breaths should be through the nose and and uh, in and out through through the nose. To get there takes a very long time, which is why especially professional athletes really need someone to, to train them. But I would suggest people do. I bet a lot of your listeners have a stationary bike. Get a pulse oximeter. They cost about 10 bucks now and see how little breathing you need to keep your oxygen levels up. I think you will be astounded of how hard you can push and how little you need to breathe in order to keep your oxygen levels up to 96%, 97%. And that's a good way of convincing yourself um, that you're breathing too much. And it seems from my, again, my anecdotal experience on it, that your heart rate is lower when you're mouth breathing. On my stationary, we use, it's called what bike, just a stationary bike, but it measures heart rate and power at the same time. So power is like the application of how how hard we're pressing down on the pedals. It's measured in watts. But so I was just, do you remember these old experiments? I'm not even sure if you call them experiments. Like you'd have an old football manager and he'd make you do a lap around the field, but wouldn't let you spit the water out. And that was like their way of training you to breathe properly. So I would try that occasionally on my indoor bike. So I'd do 10 minutes in zone two, uh, normal breathing, and then 10 minutes holding water in my mouth. And you can notice your heart rate is much lower, your average heart rate across that second 10 minute block with the water in your mouth. Absolutely. And this isn't some placebo effect. This is your body responding to allowing to performing at a more efficient level. So when we were at doing the Stanford test, we had a pulse oximeter on, uh, we, we tested this mouth breathing and nasal breathing, and we we're just trying to get to, to 136 
BPM, which is not not very hard, right? It it is so much harder when you are nasal <laughs> breathing. And if if you nasal breathe in a cycle, in a clear rhythm, we're trying to nasal breathe, you know, heart rate one thirty six, nasal breathe about eight breaths per minute in a cycle, and we could not get our heart rates up to even one one thirty six. And so that's just showing you if if you're able to put out that that output on that bike and still have your heart rate so low just imagine all the energy you're saving to push it even harder right to get your heart rate higher you you have all that energy in reserve and that's how you're going to win races so if somebody's listening uh to the podcast right now and they're like okay i want to start on this journey towards breathing through the nose breathing more mindfully increasing my performance on health through breathing What's some like real tangible getting started tips for them? I, I would buy a pulse oximeter because a lot of people, what, what they respond to when they say, I can't breathe. When you start training someone to breathe very slowly, they say, well, obviously I'm not getting enough oxygen. I'm going to die. Once you put a pulse oximeter on, it's no longer your brain thinking this. You are looking at a real time uh, readout of data and you will see that by breathing very slow, there is plenty of oxygen in your bloodstream. What you are responding to is an increase of carbon dioxide. And this is something that almost everyone gets wrong. Right now, if you hold your breath and you feel that nagging need to breathe, it's not oxygen, it's an increase of CO2. The more tolerant you get of more CO2 in your body, the better you are gonna be at performing. That's what they're finding right now. So you need oxygen, of course, but you also need a healthy balance of oxygen and CO2. So I would get that pulse ox on and I would work out and you can put your heart rate up to, you know, 130, 135, whatever, and play around with your breathing. Start breathing through your mouth and don't pay attention to your breathing and, and look at the pulse ox and, and calculate your efficiency and, and also calculate your distance on the bike, right? Then switch to nasal breathing and breathe any way you want. Then switch to nasal breathing in very clear cycles, in a rhythmic pattern. Think of your breath like a circle, okay? So it's not, it's just, just imagine that circle. And I think you will see that you were able to go a distance uh, much quicker and you're able to recover much faster when you're allowing your body to operate at the state of efficiency. Some other people like to do, you know, three revolutions for an inhale, longer exhales, five revolutions for an exhale. You can experiment with all that later. What that's doing is the longer you exhale, the more relaxed you're gonna get. And, and the more you're gonna stay in a parasympathetic state. But for the right at the beginning, get that pulse ox, experiment with your breathing over time, collect your, I have a feeling your listeners are, are, are data freaks just like we are, collect your data, see what happens, and acknowledge that this stuff can take a while for people with serious nasal breathing issues, it can take a long time. And do you have a daily practice or a daily ritual for your breathing, apart from the type in your mouth at nighttime? Well, everyone thinks since I wrote this book on breath, I just sit around in a, you know, a towel and breathe <laughs> all day. But I, I wish I had that life. It sounds sounds amazing. Um, I don't. So uh, that's not to say I don't I didn't adopt a number of what these 
these things. You, you can only see so many people transformed by this stuff before you, you start wanting to do it yourself. So I breathe for about uh, 15 minutes in, in the morning. I have a practice I do, pretty vigorous uh, kundalini-like practice that gets me going throughout the day. But the most impactful thing for you isn't that 15-minute workout. It's how you carry yourself throughout the day. I'm never breathing through my mouth while I'm working, while I'm exercising. I'm never breathing through my mouth at night. And that, to me, is is what is really going to make the biggest difference for people. That's not to say those those practices aren't effective. Wim Hof breathing, it's freaking great. I love it. Sudarshan Kriya, love it. Kundalini, Pranayama, all awesome. But again, it's about carrying these healthy habits with you all the time in order to get the most benefit. And is there early effects? I'm often uh, when we're coaching athletes, when you get them an early win, it's so easy to get them to buy into a system because they're like, oh this is the vehicle. Everyone's looking for a result. And when they get that early win, they're like, oh my God, this is the vehicle I've been searching for. Is there an early win they can look out for and say, oh, actually this is working. Now I'm on the right path. I, I wish the answer was, was yes. Um, <laughs> maybe the, the thing you should be looking for is that early loss and how big that early loss is. And then once you have that early loss, you can build up from there knowing that once you reach that crescendo, that plateau, you will be better. You will be performing better. You will recover better. So in the meantime, in order to convince people that this stuff isn't crazy, collect the data. Show them their heart rate variability, breathing through their nose and through their mouth. Show them if, if they don't have obstruction issues and other structural issues in their noses, how much more efficiently they can ride a bike, how much more relaxed they are. Show them the distance they're able to, to ride within a certain amount of time, nasal breathing versus mouth breathing. I can't tell you how that's going to work out for each person because everyone's different. Some people acclimate very quickly to this. Within a couple weeks, they're up and rolling. Cool. Other people, it's going to take a long time. If you're noticing someone has seems to really have problems breathing through their noses, they should probably see a, a professional get a scan to make sure it's, it's not some serious structural issue that's really holding them back. James, the book is absolutely brilliant. I must have gifted it to 10, 15 people. It's something that everybody should check out. I'm going to leave a link to the book in the show notes for today's episode. James Nestor, thank you for joining me on the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Thanks a lot for having me. Roadman, thank you for listening to today's episode of the Roadman Cycling Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm asked all the time how listeners can support the podcast. Well, there's a number of ways you can support the podcast. As I mentioned at the outset, Patreon is an easy way to support it. But if you don't feel like subscribing on Patreon or you can't afford to subscribe on Patreon, a really easy way to support the podcast is simply sharing it with a friend. Take the episode link and sharing it into WhatsApp groups, into club Facebook groups, and just helping to spread the roadman word you can follow me and you can find me over on instagram our handle on instagram it's roadman.cycling or we have a new tiktok account where we're taking extracts from the podcast and posting them over there on roadman cycling podcast is the handle there really for all things roadman cycling the mission control is our main website which is newly launched and that's on roadmancycling.com you can also leave us a review on apple podcast they make such a huge difference or if you're not on apple you can leave the review anywhere where you listen to the podcast Roadmen, have a great day and ride safe.